brothers, sisters, and friends. It's good to, good to see you. I'm glad that you're, you're here this morning. We're going to begin uh, in uh, Exodus chapter 12 in just a moment. So if you have your, your Bible and would like to go ahead and turn there to Exodus chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 1 in just the moment. We've come to the, the last sign of, of judgment in Exodus, and because of that, uh, it's, it's a little bit more lengthy. So all of chapter 11 has been introducing it, and chapter 12 will be the uh, introducing some more of it, as well as the execution of the, the plague. But for now, there is this time of preparation that needs to take place for before this particular sign of judgment comes upon the land. Last week, we introduced this 10th plague in chapter 11 as God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh and to tell the Israelites what he was about to do in the land. And in that, he was going to bring great judgment upon the land of Egypt, the worst of the worst. This last one that he was going to kill all of the firstborn of of Egypt. And in that chapter, we saw three glorious things about God, and that is God's fulfilling his promise to his people to deliver them out of the land of Egypt in his in, in, in favor, right? We didn't say it last week, but, but in the text, it actually says that not even a dog would bark against you. No dog would even growl against you as you, as you leave. That's the kind of favor God was going to put on his people. And secondly, we, we talked about and saw the, the righteousness of God of even in such a judgment in the 10th plague, the severity of this last judgment upon the death of the firstborn. But we see how God is always holy. He is always righteous. He will always do what's right. And that's such an important statement for us to understand that God will always do what's right. And for him to do anything less than that in any way that's contrary to that would be contrary to his nature. In any way that he would act that would be contrary to his nature would mean that he is not God at all. So God is acting correctly and rightly according to his nature as holy and just. That's why we read texts like Romans 9. The Apostle Paul tells, tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, Pharaoh, right? So here's the example from Exodus, right? Pharaoh, for the very purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Which, to boil it down very simply, apart from God's sovereign grace, none of us would be saved. And the last point we see in the God's kindness and how he is going to give a, make a distinction between Egypt and his people there in 11 verse 7. And this morning as we we move now into chapter 12, we're going to see the means by which God provides for his people to, to make that distinction between his people and Egypt. And in this thing, the thing that we see that the Lord uses and what he does for his people, we gloriously are reminded of something that is far more wonderful and far more powerful to save. So let's look to Exodus chapter 12 starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, The month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the twelfth, or that, excuse me, the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, shall make your counts for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let any of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. And in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, at night, and I shall strike, and I will strike the, all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you, to destroy you, when I strike the land. Of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. It's not often that I have good timing, but this Sunday seems that I am quite spot on. I guess a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. And as you know from reading this text, this is a description of the Passover. And this Sunday, being the last Sunday of the month, we take the Lord's Supper. So I encourage you to pay attention this morning and listen for the clues from the Passover that lead us to the Lord's Supper this morning that we will celebrate together as the church. If you've ever had to hire or bring in a babysitter for your children, then, then you know that the first time, maybe it's a new person, how much detail you have to leave them uh, before you leave. And depending on your personality, depending on if you're, you know, that, that type A personality, that, that, that you, have, you want everything kind of done to the, to the T, right? You want, to know, you want to tell them all the expectations, you know, what time to put them to bed, dinner, etc., things like that. And especially for, you know, the cost of babysitters these days, I mean, they, they should be like cleaning your house. So, so you write everything out on, on, on a piece of paper in, in detail, like uh, uh, some people do like a minute-by-minute minute schedule of what to do with the baby, what to feed them, what to give them to drink, when to feed them, when not to give them something to drink, what are the approved books for, for reading what games you can play with the children or the child, what verses of what songs to sing before, before bed, contacts li contact lists and emergency contact lit numbers, hotline to poison control, Wi-Fi passwords, such and such, although that's probably not a good idea. There's so many details that you want to tell and give when someone is taking care of your children. Chapter 11 was a good chapter. We talked about it last, last week. I just summed it up to you a few minutes ago. And that told us what God was going to do to Egypt in judgment. And, of course, we see that in chapter 12. But chapter 11 leaves us with some questions, some, some missing details, some very important details, right? Kind of the, the kind of details and instructions you don't want your babysitter to be going, staying at home and go, now what do I do? What do I do in this situation? How would they want me to react? And the good news is, is here comes chapter 12, like that, that list of answers that we need, the thing that we can turn back to, to, to to get the information that we need. And it answers those important questions, namely the important question that it answers in chapter 12 is, how will the Lord make that distinction that he says in verse 7 of chapter 11? How is he going to save his people? 
And so chapter 12, as you will, is this detailed list to the, to the babysitter. Now, of course, we know it to be more than that. Chapter 12, brothers and sisters, is the apex of Exodus. The Passover is the most important and defining event in all of the Old Testament. And I would say this probably, it is probably the third most important event in all of the Bible. And I'll let you try to determine what you think the next, the, the first two are. It is certainly the biggest and most important event in all of Jewish history and the Jewish people, and it still is today, maybe rivaling with the Day of Atonement. Now, sure, they have several important festivals and feasts throughout the year. They have, I believe it's seven. They have seven feasts. But Passover is arguably the biggest and the most important. And here we are, chapter 12, the institution of the Lord's Passover. Now, here in chapter 12, what's really interesting about this is that the Israelites are still in Egypt. They're, they're still in, in Egypt. And ever since Genesis, since the book of Genesis, this is the first time the Lord has told his people to make an offering. The first time they told them to make an offering. It's also the beginning of the law. The beginning of the law of sacrifice. This chapter cannot be understated in its importance in the Bible. But to us, we rarely think of the Passover, don't we? It was just a couple weeks ago, wasn't it? Just a couple weeks ago, it shows up maybe on your, your Google calendar or your Apple calendar or whatever it may be. shows up as Passover, and you're like, oh, Passover's here. Well, that means Easter's coming up, right? It shows up like that. We really don't think about it. And, and the reason is we, we don't kill a lamb. We're not, we're not trying to find lambs and goats four days beforehand. We're not searching for bitter herbs to eat. We're not putting on particular uniforms for the for Passover. We don't observe Passover. In fact, we hardly recognize it. And so then why, why would we, as Christians, why would we stop and, and, and go all the way back to Exodus and look at the Passover, read Exodus chapter 12, we read from Deuteronomy this early this morning and talking about the Passover there when we hardly recognize it. And the reason is this, is because we must understand, as Christians, we have to understand our Christian roots in a sense, our Christian history in a sense. And our roots as Christians comes out of the Old Covenant. Christianity is... The new covenant, and the new covenant fulfills the old covenant in which the Passover is a part of. And spoiler alert, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that Christ is our Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper points us to the substitutionary atonement on the cross by Jesus Christ who, as John the Baptist rightfully proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What lamb does John mean? What's the lamb that John is talking about? The lamb that John is talking about is the, the lamb of sacrifice, the lamb for atonement, the, of, of, a, of Passover. And so when we look back at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, brothers and sisters, we're, we're not merely going back to Egypt and staying there, but we're looking back in order to look forward to Christ and the cross and the gospel. And so this morning, ultimately, as we do every Sunday, when we look at the Passover, we are looking at Christ. We are, we are considering, we are looking toward, we're putting our eyes toward him as John did that day, proclaiming Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins 
of the world. And the Passover is thousands and thousands of years earlier was anticipation of that time of when Jesus came. And so this morning, I'm going to show you three things that connects us from the Passover to the gospel. First thing is this. I want to show you that we are all guilty and we are all in need. As our brother prayed this morning so correctly in our prayer of confession. That we are sinners in need of grace and mercy to confess our sins and to repent of our sin. Back in chapter 11, we already acknowledged the the, the righteous judgment of God on Egypt, right? They're the oppressors. The Egyptians, they're they're the guilty ones, right? They're guilty. They're the sinners, right? They are the bad guy. I mean, Pharaoh is like the worst of the worst, right? He's the the worst bad guy in all the stories, right? He is the bad guy. We know that. That's easy to to spot, and we understand why God is judging them, because they are wicked and they've done evil things. We talked about that last week. And so God sends his plagues upon them. But we, and we also see how God makes a distinction between his people and, and, and Egypt. He makes a, a distinction between them. But this one, the distinction is going to be different. The judgment of death in this tenth plague is coming. And the distinction that is required then is something that God is going to have to provide. Now, chapter 12, with all of its detail, right? It gives us so many details. We'll talk about some of those in just a few minutes. And all of its detail, it is telling us that Israel, though distinct from Egypt, is still under the same sentence of death. If you look all the way down to verse 13, look at verse 13. It says, the blood shall be a sign sign for you which means they, they need something assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so clearly, without this sign, where would, he, where would Israel be but in the same predicament of death of Egypt. That unless you believe in the word that I give you and you rely on the provision, you rely on the the substitute, what I provide to you of a way of escape, then death will surely come upon you. That's a warning there. It's also a promise. Isn't that wonderful how God so intermingles in his warnings of judgment, his grace still, and his mercy. Still for the, for Israel, it must have been quite shocking that they're now in danger. And previously with all the other plagues, God has just given the distinction, didn't send the nets there, or the flies, and, and made the light there in the darkness and spared them from all the chaos and the destruction of these plagues. And certainly, we do acknowledge God's God's special providence and love for his people. He sends his deliverer to his people. But brothers and sisters, that does not mean that they are without sin. That does not mean that Israel is not guilty and that Israel as well does not deserve to die just like the Egyptians. And if God did not provide a way for the means of their salvation, then judgment would come upon them. Israel was guilty before God. Let me give you just a few examples, just from Exodus. The first time that Israel spoke collectively, back in chapter 5, verse 21, what did they do? What did they say? Well, the first thing that they did was they rejected Moses. They rejected God's prophet, right? The first time they didn't, but, but as soon as Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Pharaoh, God said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who is this God? I don't know who this Lord is. I tell you what. I'm going to put more on your people. Now they're going to have to make bricks without straw, right? And if they don't, then they're going to die, right? More oppression. And so Israel's like, what in the world? Who, what are you doing, Moses? And they, who did they cry out to? Did they cry out to the Lord? No, they cried out to Pharaoh. 
the one who has been impressing them, the one who has been giving them more and more difficulty, the one who's been enslaving them, the one who committed genocide and infanticide upon them. They cry out to Pharaoh for relief, not the Lord, and they reject Moses by calling upon God to bring judgment on Moses. The Egyptians clearly rejected God's word. But so did the Israelites. And this is the sin of all mankind. That we reject God's word. And rejecting God's word, then we fail to honor God as God. And for that, when God's judgment comes, there will be no escape. Secondly, we see their guilt of idolatry, or at least we'll see it later. Not mentioned here in Exodus, but later in, in Joshua, when the Israelites renew their covenant with the Lord. Joshua tells them. He exhorts them to throw away their gods and their idols that their forefathers brought out of Egypt. What does that mean? It means they're guilty of, of idolatry. In some ways, there's, there's no surprise in some of this, right? They've been in Israel, Egypt for so long, and, and, and of course, it can have such an influence on them. And we can sympathize in this, brothers and sisters, because we understand that in the flesh, how hard it is to be in the world, but not of the world. We get that. Israel is guilty of those particular ways, those two ways that I just mentioned to you. But lastly, they are also guilty like all mankind. Because by nature, they are sinners. And since Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse of death for sin entered into the world. And by our nature, we are all now participating in the guilt of Adam. And so Romans 6.23, or, or 3.23, excuse me, says very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I like how the 1689 Confession says it as it does. The guilt of sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, in all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. And of course, we know this to come as a summary, in a sense, as the, of the whole Bible. From Romans chapter 5 and Psalm 51, Job 14, verse 4, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You certainly can hear that in there. Romans 6, 20, Hebrews 2, and so many more. And so proving that the, the Bible is true over and over and over again is the indisputable objective evidence that the doctrine of sin, which is a part of the doctrine of man, is absolutely true. The two main parts of this doctrine, the doctrine of man, consists of two things, right? Of course, there's other subcategories, but, it, but it, 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 it deals with two main things. The first thing is this, that they were created by God, that man was created by God and made in the image of God. Praise God. But that man is sinful. And in our sin, we have, we have marred the image of God. Not destroyed, but we have marred the image of God. And the objective evidence is this, the doctrine of, of man, the doctrine of sin is all around us. Sin and sickness, wickedness and evil and hatred, brokenness, suffering and death. But brothers and sisters, we do not believe in the progressive movement that says that we are getting better. There's so much evidence that things are just getting worse. Sure, technology we are. Some medical things we're getting better at, but, but it's sin is still there. We're not getting better. Sin is still pervasive in giving full vent of that and suppressing the truth. Then we get wickedness all around. But it's not just, and it's not just Israel. 
Again, the Apostle Paul is correct in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are the Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Israel is guilty. And as I said last week, the wages of sin are still death, Romans 6.23. But we too, we too are to understand that we are guilty in our sin. And we, like Israel, we are guilty and yet we still also need a Savior. Romans 3 says this, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of all mankind, sinful and rebellious. And that sinful rebellion deserves just judgment. The wrath of God deserves death, as the the curse says from Genesis chapter 3. And when you sin against an infinitely holy and righteous God, then holy justice is the demand. Is, is the demand. And, and for God to do anything less than that would be contrary to his nature, which makes him not God. And so this tenth plague is given as a sign of God's judgment, of his just judgment upon all of humanity. And before a holy and righteous God, again, we are all guilty and we all deserve the judgment of God. Christians, we need to remember that. We need to remember that that was once our position before God. That was once the the place in which we stood before God, the one who still shook his fist before God, either in complete, utter, sinful rebellion or even in our self-righteousness of playing the little Christian goody two-shoes, right? We were still holding our fists up high and shaking our fists before God, saying, I can do better and achieve my own salvation. Christians, that is once where we were deserving the righteous, holy judgment of God, that we deserved death. An unbeliever, this truth is something you need to come to terms with, that you are guilty and needy before God. And one day you will face the judgment of God. And if you do not understand your guilt before God and repent of your sin and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you will never understand your need for salvation. This is where the gospel starts, is that we are guilty. Israel could not deliver themselves. It's not their blood that's required. It's a lamb. Sin would need to be atoned for. And that deliverance and atonement would only come through sacrifice. And just like for us, you cannot save yourself. 
And there's no amount of righteousness or goodness or right things or kind things or socially acceptable things that you can do to appease and satisfy the wrath of God. There is but only one way. And that is through point two, the substitute that God provided. We're guilty. We need the Lord's provision. And the only way in which a sinful, guilty, and needy man can be saved from certain death is through the Lord giving us a substitute. Now, if you look at the text, you can see that there is just a number of rules preparing them for the Passover. And I think there's around 16 of them if you go through each one, but I just want to highlight the big ones and kind of sum them all up in four. And the first one is in verses 1 and 2. We see here God in the Passover, God is giving his people a new beginning, literally. This is when your calendar is going to start here. The new, that new month, starting number one, the first month of the year. This is, this is the time when you will begin to prepare for the Passover. And the significance of this is, is this, is that, is that the very fabric of their calendar, the very, the very thing of uh, runs like everyday life, time and schedules and routines, that there shall be a remembrance of this great new beginning for them. And this new beginning is marked by what? Their salvation, their redemption. This redemption of atonement. A deliverance not from Pharaoh, but a deliverance from death. This isn't in, the Passover isn't about them being necessarily delivered from Egypt. It's from them being delivered from death. And second, we see in verses 3 through 6, God gives them a sacrifice. He tells each household, very specific, right? Get a, get a goat, get a lamb. Share it with another household if you're, if you're small enough. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, such grace there. Take the lamb, take one, a, male that's, a, a lamb that's a male, that's, that's a, a, a year old, and it is spotless and without defect or injury. The lamb for the sacrifice for sin, and the only sacrifice acceptable to the Lord is a perfect sacrifice. And they're to take that lamb on the 10th the day, Bring it into their home, and they're letting it live with them. And then on the 14th day, the 14th day of the month, at twilight, which is between 3 p.m. and dark, they're given the, inst the instructions to kill the lamb. Then the, the instructions continue in verses 7 through 11, how, to, how they're to uh, observe the, the meal. Right? Take the blood from the lamb and, and, and literally take the blood and paint it on the doorpost and the lintel, right? The part that goes over the doors. Paint the door, coat the door with that blood of that sacrifice. Then take the rest of the lamb, right? First, roasting it. Isn't that good? Isn't it great that God said roast it instead of boil it? I, 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 I kind of stopped there in the text because I kind of wanted to say, yeah, because that's gross. It's gross, right? But unless it's corned beef, then it's good. Um, back to the text. Roast it. Barbecue it. Barbecue it. Cook it. Right? And, and this is completely consistent with God's commands to Noah, isn't it? To eat it. And so this meal, right, is to be eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. What's, what's bitter herbs? Think uh, horseradish. That's a bitter herb. The bread represents the, the haste and the, the readiness to leave Egypt. And the, the bitter herbs were to be a reminder of their bitter lives that they once had in Egypt. Sort of like point one in our sermon today. It's like the bitter herbs of being reminded that we are sinners and we deserve death. But also in, notice in, in verse 10 how the, the Lord tells them how to finish the meal, right? No leftovers. Burn the remains. And I think that there's some spiritual significance for us, right? Of the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ is enough. Nothing is required for tomorrow. It's done. The sacrifice has been 
been given, but also it's to kill any temptation to think that the Passover meal, if it's left over, was going to uh, um, allow any kind of superstition or magic tricks. If you keep eating it, you know, you'll be specially blessed or something like that. And so the lesson for us that the Lord is given to us here is it's pointing forward to the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Fourth, verse 11, the Lord tells them to eat the meal like this, with your belts fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And, and, and we, we, we maybe not understand this completely because we generally eat with our belts on still and shoes still on and, when, you know, and, our, and our coats still on. We, we sometimes take our meals really quick, right? Boom, boom, in and out. Get my meal and get it to go, right? But this is not that kind of meal. This is a meal that you are to stop and to, and to enjoy or not to enjoy, right? This is like the exact opposite, right? I remember my, um, my grandmother corrected me one time when I went to her house. I think it was either Thanksgiving or, or Christmas. We went to her, her house, and she prepared this amazing meal. I mean, she's lit- she was literally been cooking it for months, and it was fantastic. And I remember coming to the table, one of the meals, and, and I remember I had my hat in my hand. I, I was smart enough to know not to come to the table with my hat on, but I had my jacket on. Not a, not a suit coat, but my you know, outdoor jacket. And I came to the table with my jacket on, and she, she quickly corrected me. And she quickly told me, go, go put your hat away. Don't take your hat to the table. And go take your jacket off and stay for a while. Right? That was kind of a, a sarcastic way of you're being rude. <laughs> You're, you're being rude. And, and the way that I was being rude was, is with my jacket on, it was almost like I'm just here to eat and leave. I'm not really here to take the time to show the appreciation to the host who, who took so much time to cook and to make this and to serve this wonderful meal and for me then to enjoy such hospitality. We miss sometimes those sort of things and just common courtesy in our culture today, don't we? But this meal, the Passover, is the exact opposite. Keep your jacket on, Ben. Keep your hat ready. Keep your shoes on and your belt on because we may have to make a move pretty quickly. This isn't a taking your time and relaxing kind of meal. This is about a preparation to be prepared to go. Boy, does that sound familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that remind us of another meal? that maybe one day soon we're going to take together. A meal is eaten quickly because it is anticipation of God's deliverance and God's judgment. Now, now in all of that, of course, there's so much that can be said in all the 16 of the little rules or the four that I just said there, but what shines through is God's provision. What shines through is God's provision mostly, right, in the substitute, the substitute representative in the Passover lamb that was killed and whose blood was painted on the doorposts and roasted and eaten. Brothers and sisters, the the Bible is so consistent with the same message, isn't it? And the only way to come to God is how? By the blood of the lamb. Listen to Hebrews 11, right? We know Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. Hebrews 11, verse 28, it's talking about Moses. It says, by faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn may not touch them. Blood was shed for their deliverance from the destroyer. But this, this lamb only pointed to something else because we also know early Hebrews 10 4 it says this it says that for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away their sins and so ultimately in this yes God has provided the Passover lamb for his people that this lamb points to something else because we still we see the Israel still have a need for a perfect substitute a better substitute, a pure and spotless lamb, the lamb of God, as John said, who takes away the sins of the world. In Luke chapter 22, when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he tells them this in verse 15. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
Jesus is saying to his boys around the table, he says, I have been looking forward to this. Now is the time to come. That, one, that, was, that once was once concealed in the meal, in the Passover. That once was, was so far off. That was so distant. All of salvation history was leading up to this moment. All of the Passover, right? All the Passovers, all the lambs that were slaughtered were all being pointed up to this, to this one lamb, to this one moment that Jesus says, I've been anticipating this meal with you all. Verse 16, he says, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says, and I took the cup, and he took the cup, one of the cups of the Passover. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God. This is what he's saying. He's saying this isn't just my last Passover, right? He's not saying this is just my last Passover, right? Because I'm going to die tomorrow. He is saying this is the last Passover because tomorrow on the cross, the Passover is going to be fulfilled through his sacrifice, through his suffering, and through the shedding of, the, of his blood on the cross. As they painted the doorpost, right? Christ's blood is painting the cross. And the kingdom of God then is inaugurated and has come. We exist as the church in the kingdom of God. Jesus understood his mission very well. He was born to die. And sitting down at that meal in Luke 22, he knew it was close. He knew he was going to suffer. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to face the most excruciating pain ever. He knew he would be beaten. He knew he'd be put to shame and humiliated and separated from his father as he hung on the cross. And yet Jesus still said, I anticipate this meal. And I believe it was from ages past. Even from Genesis chapter 3. Even from the sacrifice of the lamb here in Exodus chapter 12. Jesus is anticipating the last Passover when he comes to inaugurate his kingdom. Because it was there on the cross. Not Passover. On the cross. The apex of all of history. Is where God put on display his perfect, just, and holy righteousness as he poured out his wrath upon his son. And then simultaneously, we see the love of God being manifested by giving us a perfect substitute. So that we could be saved. So that we could be redeemed. So that we could be delivered sinners from death. Jesus would stand in as the true Passover lamb. Who would be sacrificed for the sins of his people. Not on a Thursday, but on a Friday. Which does what? It changed our calendar, didn't it? The new beginning of Sunday. The Lord's Day where we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. The finished work of Christ was completed by him that no little lamb could ever do. God's wrath had been satisfied. The lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world, the Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And they celebrated the last Passover in that upper room because Jesus is the greater Passover lamb, a true substitute who was provided in the first Passover. Now God has provided in his son. All those other little lambs were pointing to the lamb of God. And so that now as his people, as his people did that night by faith, painted their doorposts, we respond in faith and to receive grace and mercy to be delivered from death by the same Lamb of God who is our substitute on the cross. And lastly, real quick, verse 12 tells us how the Lord is going to pass through Egypt. He's going to strike all the firstborn of man and animals and the gods of Egypt. But verse 13, as we've already read, 
because of the blood, that is a sign. The Lord will pass over you, and he will not destroy you. And what does this mean? It means God is faithful. He keeps his promises, and he keeps his word. The blood is this, this sign of sparing his people from judgment, which is, again, as we've mentioned before, is rooted in his love. And so from this point on, we see blood, well, not the first time, but certainly a, one of the major times, we see blood as becoming a sign of mercy, the shedding of blood for, for mercy. And it's to remind them, this blood, this sign, is to be a reminder of God's grace that they too deserve judgment like the lamb. So here's such an important point to why God commands them then that this is a sign, and we're definitely going to see it later in chapter 12, is that God tells them to remember this and to repeat this. And the reason is, is because the ultimate difference between God's people, his people in Egypt, is his grace in his mercy. That's why they're commanded to celebrate and to observe the Passover every year. When the year begins anew, observe the Passover. But as we've already said, the Passover would not ultimately save them, right? It's to point them to, to something else, to another lamb that they would need. Remember, the, those lambs were just a sign. I mean, it says right there in the text, it's just a sign. It's not the thing. It is just a, it's a sign because God's grace would come in a way of another lamb that would bring the, fulfill, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb and for the forgiveness of sin that would give reconciliation with the Lord ultimately. And after the Passover, when Israel had left Egypt, this is a great story, I love this. After Israel left Egypt, the Lord led them to Mount Sinai where we're going to eventually get there, Exodus 24. Then it says that Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel went up to the mountain. And it actually says in the text that, that God allowed it, allowed them to come to him. And it says that all of them there, the 70 elders and Moses and Aaron, it says that behold, they beheld God and they ate and they drank. They had a meal together. They ate in the presence of God. They were delivered through a meal, through the Passover to meal, to have a meal with God in Exodus 24. But it was only just the leaders, right? It was only just the, the leaders that went to the mountain. The people were still terrified by, the, by God's presence. And the reason is, is because the presence of God is dangerous. He's holy and we are sinful, right? And so this whole thing is this reminder of the problem of sin and judgment that must be addressed before we can eat in fellowship with God. You remember Luke, 20, or yeah, Luke 22 when Jesus said that he was eager to have that meal with his disciples? Because the word had become flesh and dwelt among us. What man could never do, go eat with God. God came and ate with his people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what he bore in his body the atonement for his, with his blood, the new covenant that is here, that we live in, that we exist in, and with peace that we have is through Christ. And now the Spirit indwells in us and gives us new hearts and renews our minds and fellowships with us. He dwells with us. And together as the body of Christ, he is with us. And he eagerly awaits us as we enjoy remembering him. On the first Passover, the Israelites, what did they do? They painted their doorposts with the blood. They ate the lamb, the bitter herbs, and the leavened bread and kept their belts fastened and their shoes on. But they were huddled in their homes, awaiting the judgment of God. The judgment of God that brought such terror upon the land remember what it says that there would be such a cry in egypt like there will never that there never has been or never will be before but the children of god were what saved by the blood of the lamb death passed over them brothers and sisters this morning we are not huddled up are we we didn't slaughter lambs in preparation for this morning. We didn't paint the outside of our building 
with blood. There's no bitter herbs for us to eat, but praise God, the Lamb of God has come. And he has been sacrificed once and for all. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Praise God. Praise God that even now, may the weight of sin and guilt be lifted because of the work of Christ. And so we come remembering, right? We're rehearsing the gospel. That's what it is. We're rehearsing the gospel together. Praise God that he has given us something to remember that is so good and so glorious. That's outside of us. That's outside of this crazy, messed up world. He's given us something so glorious to remember him. And we trust only by faith in him. And in his work and by his blood. It is what our Savior has given to us in this meal to remember and to repeat. And though we still feel the weight of sin and death, and though we still live in such a fallen world, do not forget, Christian, that we have so much to rejoice in. And we still rejoice, don't we? We still rejoice. We still celebrate. There's so many things that we still celebrate together that are good. Things that we remember that are good. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate y'all's wedding. I mean, that's a glorious picture of the gospel, right? I mean, I mean, we're not going there just to have fun and to celebrate them and, 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 and be thankful for them. We certainly are, but we are going to be amazed and perplexed that God would send his son and join himself with us, the church, his bride, in whom he is making gloriously beautiful for himself when he comes back. No pressure. Right? That's what it represents. Repeat and remember. Repeat and remember. And one day he will come. And again I say praise God. All guilty and all those who are deserving death. All of those who are completely helpless. All of those who who should be delivered into death. I say to you, praise God that he is delivered us and that he has sent his son to be our Passover lamb, to be our substitute, who paid fully the penalty of my sin and your sin on the cross. He was sacrificed on the cross. He died and was buried and he rose again from the dead to the glory of the Father so that we too might walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. And so to all who have ears to hear, And to all of you who have eyes to see and hearts of flesh, may we together praise God, the Son of God, our Passover Lamb, and all of God's people say, Amen. You see where he gets the timing issue, right?